Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is our premiere episode for season four. That's right, four seasons. Hard to believe we're on episode 80-something. This episode is a feature episode, uh, like we have about one a month, and we are starting off with a bang. The guest today is none other than Walter Mosley. Now, if you don't know who Walter Mosley is, uh, push pause, uh, hit yourself in the face, and then go on Wikipedia and educate yourself real quick, because Mr. Mosley is nothing less than a an icon, uh, not just in crime fiction, but in, in, in fiction period. Um and uh, I was very honored to have him on the show. We had a great conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. Very intelligent, very gracious man. But before we do that, uh, we do need to remind you that uh, Wrong Place Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books. And here from Down and Out Books is Lance Wright. Uh, hey, Lance, how's it going? Great to be back, Frank. Hope you had a great summer. It's been busy for us preparing for this fall's publication schedule. And we have a number of terrific titles to talk about today. Deep Red Cover publishes this month, and it's the third in a series of thrillers based on the real events by Joel W. Barrows and featuring ATF Special Agent David Ward, who is tasked with going undercover with a radical militia group in the Ozarks to discover who murdered one of their own and why. Also this month is the third Coast to Coast anthology edited by Andrew McAleer and Paul D. Marks, this time focusing on the noir genre and featuring a stellar lineup of contributors. The previous books and stories in this series have been nominated for numerous awards, including the Anthony, Seamus, and Derringer, and winning a McCavity Award in 2018. Finally, we have the third exciting entry in your crime series written with Colin Conway, Badge Heavy. Officer Tyler Garrett's saga continues when he is assigned to the aggressive anti-crime team. The team's success in battling crime is only matched by the dark agendas surrounding it. As the tension builds, competing goals and loyalties come into conflict. Something has got to give. And that's what we have for September, along with a few other titles. Thanks, Frank. Take care now. Well, thank you, Lance. Uh, some great books there. Uh, I, he kind of stole my thunder a little bit. I was going to announce the uh, Badge Heavy release a couple of days ago. Uh, it came out uh, during the end of show Zafiro update. So I guess that'll be a lot shorter now. <laughs> but it's always good to hear your publisher touting your own work. So that said, I think you're more likely here to hear from Mr. Walter Mosley. So let's move right into that interview. Well, hello, Mr. Mosley, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, so let's uh, go back in time to 1990, uh, which I'm sure is a date that rings a bell with you. Um, that was the year your first uh, Easy Rollins novel was published, Devil in a Blue Dress. how that all occur? Was it pretty straightforward? Or is there an interesting story there? It's interesting. I, I had originally written a book. I was going to City College, and, and it was a, a writer, you know, writer's degree program there. And I was, I was going there, and I had a class with Edna O'Brien, and I'd written a couple of, you know, kind of chapters, I guess. 
And Edna said, you should write a novel. And I did. I, just, I wrote a novel uh, called Gone Fishing, which I later published with a Black Classic Press and Paul Coates. But I sent it out to a lot of people and nobody was very interested. Uh, I mean, what they said is we, they liked the writing, but basically because it was two black characters with not highlighting black women characters and having no white people at all in it. Uh, they said, who's going to read this book? You know, wh white people don't like uh, black people. Black women don't like black men and black men don't read is what they said, uh, you know, one way or another. And so, you know, and that was okay with me because, you know, this is what, you know, happens. Most writers don't get their first books published. So then I, um, I, I started writing another book and that ended up being Devil in a Blue Dress. I didn't know it was going to be a mystery. I didn't know anything like that, but I just kept writing and writing. And uh, my mentor at, at City College, a guy named Fred Tutton said, let me give this to my agent. And he did. And she loved it. And she said, well, let's work on it. Worked on it a little bit more. And then, you know, just like that, it got published. It was, it was kind of wonderful. It's a little bit of a Cinderella story on the publication part. Yeah. Devil in a Blue Dress. Is, did you take that from the uh, Mitch Ryder song? Or yeah, I suppose, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I suppose that's, that's what influenced me at any rate, you know, <laughs> but, uh, and it was, a. Uh, it, but it was like a title of something, you know, mm -hmm. that I could take and, and restructure. I had a note to ask you the question where, uh, you know, how Easy Rollins came to creation. But it, it sounds like he really uh, came <clears throat> to be created in that Gone Fishing book that uh, you ended up publishing later, you said. Uh, mm -hmm. But how did you come up with the character of Easy Rollins, uh, albeit an earlier version of it than appears in Devil in a Blue Dress? I was writing a short story. And the short story was a first-person narrative, but you didn't know who the first person was. It was it was called Rent Party, and it was you know one of those parties where everybody comes and you know drops a quarter. It's in the '30s in in Houston. It comes and drops a quarter, and uh, and they can dance all night. And at the end of the night, you can pay your rent. Um, and so my main character was standing at the front, and he's thinking about you know different friends. Uh, and the first person he sees is uh, Raymond Alexander. And he says, uh, we, we called him Mouse because he was sharp, small and had sharp features. We really could have called him Rat because he wasn't very nice, but we liked him. So the name Mouse stuck on him. <laughs> and he starts talking about Mouse and how Mouse has his girlfriend. And, and then, uh, you know, this, the, and how he's in love with the girlfriend, the, the narrator. And then this woman, Etta Mae Harris, walks in. He's looking at her and he's, you know, kind of desiring her, but she's there for Mouse. And uh, the mouse comes up to the main character and says, hey, Easy, how you doing? And that's when I know who Easy Rollins was. But I also knew three characters that they were going to be carried all through the Easy Rollins series, Mouse, Easy, and Etta May. There's other characters that I'd written about in other stories. You know, I just put them all together. Mm -hmm. That's a series that has spanned about uh, twenty or so years for that character, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, From nineteen thirty nine uh, until nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. Oh wow! Oh, you're counting Gone Fishing in there, right? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, yeah. it is. I mean, it's it's the same characters, and they mm -hmm. still talk about the events of Gone Fishing. But so yeah. How do you navigate thirty thirty years plus of of a single character's life? What's what, is there something different about that than the, when you approach the microcosm of a one-off character or a standalone? Well, you know, a lot of uh, mystery writers, for instance, Rex Stout, who I love, you know, I mean, his, his novels are, they're wonderful novels and they're serious, but they're also, you know, they're also comedic to a degree. And so uh, he never had to change anything. 
And so it's just, he kept on coming to his characters. And as the years went by, they were in that year and they're in the next year, mm-hmm. but they were the same age, the same people. There was no, there was no changing those characters. Uh, not, not in any severe way anyway. And, and when you let a character age, then he or she gets older and the times change and they, they start to live different lives. I mean, Jackson Blue in the first uh, uh, mystery, was, uh, you know, he was just a little cowardly thief, basically. Uh, by the newest book, you know, which will come out in, in January, Blood Grove, uh, Jackson, you know, is, is the senior vice president of a major international insurance company. I mean, things change. Well, your Easy Rollins series definitely, uh, I don't know, seems to embrace that idea of what's going on in the times. I mean, uh, as I looked through, I haven't read every one of them. And as I look through mm-hmm. the one, the list of them kind of all collected together, the, I don't know, uh, flashpoints of history in that time period are certainly addressed. I mean, you have one set in November of 1963. We all know what happened there. You have one set in the aftermath of the Watts riots. I mean, you have these cultural events that had a big impact on the real world uh, featured uh, right there in those books. You don't shy away from that at all. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of reasons. Number one, it, it's really hard for me to just to be, to keep my interest in just you know, like one crime that's happened that's kind of removed from everything else. I like reading about that, but when I'm writing, I, I want to know everything. And and the reason I wrote the Easy Rollins novels was to include uh, Black people from Southern California in the history of America and Southern California. And the only way I could do that is to make it, you know, have something to do with what's really going on. My, my newest book, Blood Grove, is, is a, about, uh, in, in a major way, uh, veterans of, of the Vietnam War. And, and, and in a minor way, there's a, a woman who had lived in Vietnam and she, she um, uh, immigrated to the US. So you wanna, wanna talk about, well, what's happening? How did it happen? How did it impact us? What do we think? What do we think about each other? Uh, all of that, you know? Uh, and there, there are vast changes between the late 40s where Devil in Blue Dress is and, mm-hmm. uh, and 1969. Yeah, pretty massive changes. Um... There's a lot of, of uh, considerations of race and issues of race in your books. And um, I guess no one should have been surprised by that. That re- The very first line of, of Devil in a Blue Dress, if I can quote, is, uh, I was surprised to see a white man walk into Joppy's bar. I mean, that, that very, very quickly evokes uh, what, what's coming, what's, uh, what considerations are going to be explored. Um, when you were writing uh, any of your books, but uh, the Easy Rollins ones in particular, um, is, is the, the issue of race and, and, and relations between black and white America in the forefront as you're working on a story or a new book, or is it something that is just such, uh, such a part of the fabric that it finds its way into it just naturally? Well, you know, I mean, I think I would, I would uh, come at it from a different way in describing myself. I would say that I'm a writer who writes primarily about black male hero, Mm -hmm. a a subject that hasn't been, you know, uh, plumbed nearly well enough in American letters. And so I want to write about these heroes and I want to make them, you know, a part of the world, you know, that I live in. And in, in, in doing that, I'm going to have to talk about what people's lives are. So the, in, the way their lives are 
uh, contains, among other things, issues of race. Mm -hmm. But it's not, I mean, I don't come at it from a political point of view necessarily, even though politics enter into it. I just come at it from a, a character who's uh, living and trying to survive. If you, you go to the my contemporary mystery series, one of them, uh, uh, the Leonid McGill series, Leonid McGill doesn't think about race very much. Every once in a while it comes up in, in this last little novella I wrote, it, it had a lot to do with it. But on, on the whole, you know, he says, well, I don't have time for that. That there's, there's, there's much bigger things going on in the world. I got to deal with them. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's true in the contemporary times. Very, but people don't remember what it was like in the, the 30s and 40s and 50s, how, how incredibly uh, segregated uh, Los and every other major city was and, and, and how people survived. And so, uh, that would have to be a part of these, you know, heroes lives. What I'm hearing is that it, you focus much more on the personal level uh, of what that yeah. character experiences. And obviously race is a part of that, but it's not their focal point. No, it's not the focal point. I'm not, I'm not going to trying to talk about, uh, you know, the March on Washington or the, mm -hmm. You know, or, or or who got lynched or who didn't. What I'm what I'm talking about is is the everyday people who lived lives under that that pressure, under that weight. But mm -hmm. but most of that those that life is about these characters who can attain uh, the level of the heroic. Well, you you took a a break from Easy Rollins uh, back uh, after uh, which which book was it? Which was Blonde the Faith. Yes. And it was a pretty, it was a good decade or so, wasn't it? Maybe six or seven years. I, I had, I had, when I'd written Blonde Faith, I really liked that book, but I felt as if there was nothing else to say. I didn't. And, and at the end of the book, it was a surprise to me. Easy drives off the side of a mountain. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess he's dead. I guess we don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> what happened was it wasn't, I just didn't have anything more to say. Up until Blonde Faith, I had been writing about the world from my father and his generation's point of view. But by the time I got there, I had entered the, wor the world of my consciousness. And so I had to really start you know, talking from another point of view. And I realized that it was my point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I recognized that, then I said, oh, I can go back. I can go back to this. So you left the series on a literal cliffhanger. Uh, yeah. for, for, for a few years. Um, you, what you said brought up a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, but uh, I didn't want to forget to mention, I, I read somewhere that uh, Bill Clinton said that you were his favorite author, or his favorite mystery author. I think he said uh, his favorite mystery writer. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty big group of people to pick from and a pretty, uh, I don't know, well-known individual to mention you. Did you get a, a pretty substantial boost from that? It's interesting. You know, um, I did, but it wasn't a sales boost, really. I think I got a bigger sales booth boost from Denzel Washington and Devlin in a Blue Dress. What I got from, from Bill was all of a sudden, everybody in the media knew who I was, everybody. And that went on for years, 20 years. People would say, oh, well, you know, they would ask me the question that you're asking. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it would be, that, that was, it, it opened doors for me. In, in a critical sense. And actually, in the end, that's the most important. So yes, he had a big impact on me. Circling back to what you said about your father's uh, generation versus your own, when you're writing something that takes place in the past, 
um, versus you write contemporary work as well. Uh, how's that different? How is it? Is it easier to write those Easy Rollins settings, or is that more difficult than writing current settings, or are they just different? Well, you know, I mean, everything that you write has problems. I've written about the past all the way back to you know uh, a plantation in Georgia in the eighteen forties uh, to the future, you know, thousands of years in the future, which, which you know, in which we try to picture uh, humanity. Um, and so you, you have all kinds of problems, no matter no matter where where, where you're writing. And, and one of the wonderful things about most places is that the city that was there, you know, especially recently, like you know, 20 years ago or 50 years ago, is still there. There are parts of Los Angeles you can drive around today that look like they looked 40 years ago. The buildings look the same. The streets are the same. You know, the cars are somewhat different. But, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're really into cars, you don't have to really write about them. You know, <laughs> I, I in this new Easy Rollins novel, he gets a this, uh, you know, what's it called? Phantom Six, I think, or Phantom Four, whatever, whatever it is. It's a it's a, a Rolls Royce, a very fancy Rolls Royce. Oh, wow. Easy gets hold of that. So I have to describe that car. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the houses, you know, they're houses. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not it's not I'm not going back a thousand years where the houses are truly different. Uh, but you know, you can go to some places like London and a thousand years, some of the places that were there in London a thousand years ago are still there in Rome, 2000 years ago, they're still there. You can go look at, um, so, uh, I, I think if, if, if you, uh, you know, like allow yourself to ease into the story because the story, modern novels are mostly about the, the mindset of the characters. It's not so much about what the building was, what the music was, what the, you know, uh, clothes styles were, you know. I look at those things and, you know, but all you have to do is mention it once or twice and everybody gets the idea. So you don't delve into deep, deep research and try to recreate it with the painstaking detail. You're trying to catch the, the capture the essence of it. No, that's not what novels are about today. That, you have to go back into the 19th century, at least, and, and uh, 20th century, at least, but more into the 19th century where, you know, people were actually explaining everything because nobody, you know, there was no television, there was no radio, there was, you know, you didn't know about other places uh, unless somebody explained it in a novel. But that's not true anymore. So then you you said you started writing uh, more in the consciousness of your own generation. Um, I read somewhere that you went through a long-haired hippie phase. <laughs> I'm looking yeah, at <laughs> I'm looking at you right now, and and uh, your hair's just a little bit shorter than mine, actually. <laughs> what was that long-haired hippie phase about? You know, it was a hippie phase. It was I was uh, started in 1968, I think, when I was in high school, and lasted until maybe the, the early 80s. You know. Wow, you milked it. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. What was appealing about it? Well, I don't know. It was, you know, it was like the, it was a, a, a kind of a revolutionary period mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, for the people. I think that it, these these are people who were talking about they didn't want to have war, they didn't want to have racism, they didn't want to, you know. There's a lot of, you know, they they wanted to save the planet way back then, you know, all, all mm-hmm. the the kind of interesting and I think necessary ideas come out out of that time and most of it comes from 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 those people 
you know, all this kind of change, you know, there was a, it, the youth, you know, as always, as today, the youth, uh, you know, are willing to demand change. Well, you were a young man during that time period. Um, so you were part of that youth. Um, and, and I guess that, you know, you, you probably have a pretty good view of it, having seen it up close. How does it compare to uh, what's happening today? Because I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 52, so um, I, I was born about at the height of that movement, so I didn't get to see it firsthand. Uh-huh. Um, but this has a kind of a seismic feel to it. These times have kind of a seismic feel to it, where as other times when there's been little ripples, you, you kind of felt like, ah, we're this will pass and things will go back to normal is kind of the, the cynical view. Uh, this feels a little different. Uh, feels, you mean today? I mean today, yeah. yeah. And, and I guess, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Does it feel that way to you or what? Well, it's so interesting. You know, um, I think a lot of people today, a lot of younger people today in mid-30s on down uh, are really committed to changing the way that the, the world is seen. I think that that's that's true, uh, and they're they're out there and they're talking about it and they, you know want to do it, uh, and that's that's kind of great. I, a lot of times, though, I think the emotional connection to it is saying this is the worst it's ever been. I remember the Watts, uh, what I call the riots, people here call the rebellion in '65, um, where you know I mean 40 people died in Los Angeles, you know, in a five day period. Um, it was incredibly violent. It was incredibly broken down on racial lines. It was, you know, uh, black, it was black people fighting for something, but there weren't white people fighting with us. No, no nothing like that. Um, and I think that that you, each time you have, while you're having it, it is the absolute, you know, feeling. It's it's, but it's good to understand it in respect to its history. I'm, I'm looking now where, you know, there are actually cities talking about, you know, uh, it's a misnomer, but defunding the police. Mm-hmm. I went, wow, that's that's really extraordinary that people are actually willing to talk about it. The people who, you know, uh, back in, in my time, they just completely, uh, you know, disregarded us and what we were doing. I mean, there were some social changes later. Um, but nothing likes going like that likes going on today. But I'm not sure if I would think that there's anyone more important because every time that people are are taking action, the people who take action, you know, a decade later, two decades later, are building on those actions. And you know, and then you have the other, you know, incredible, you know, impacts. You know, for instance, like hip hop music has made a, a, a white people understand what black life is like. Young white people, you know, and it's it's. You know, and hip hop is much more political than rock and roll. Rock and roll did the same thing in the day, mm-hmm. but today uh, it's actually people. You know, people talk about the lives they live and, and and the problems with the lives they live. The other, you know, other impact is you know technology. People didn't have you know video cameras in their telephones, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. And now you know it's like what we know has happened every day for the last four hundred years. People are saying, "Wow, this uh, you know this." animosity between black and white is, you know, really getting bad. And I guess it's you could getting, say that. It's getting noticed is more it's, of the accurate it's statement. getting noticed, right. Yeah. You mentioned defund the police. Uh, I, I'm retired law enforcement. I was uh, caught for 20 years in Spokane, Washington. And I think a lot of my um, peers and former peers and colleagues, when they hear that term, 
you know, of course, they immediately recoil because they hear disband the police. And um, that's uh, I I, that's not what I hear. I when I think of defund the police, I think of of reimagining the role of the police in our society and Mm -hmm. for thinking police officers who who, you know, get past that immediate immediate reaction. I think most of them would be in favor of that because, I mean, over the last 30 years, certainly over the course of my career, every time a social program was cut, the responsibility for dealing with whatever that social program used to deal with fell to the police. They were the safety net. They were the bottom, you know, if if all else fails, call the cops. And so, you know, there's a reason why there were some unfortunate and tragic deaths involving people who are mentally disturbed that shouldn't have happened. Um, You know, my brothers and sisters weren't necessarily equipped or as well equipped to deal with those scenarios. And then tragedy ensues. Same tools you had no matter what. Right. 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 It's it's like, Oh, I grabbed them. I cuffed them. I put them in jail, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, you know, and also, you know, there's always been in in, in America, a a, a sense of uh, the first thing we have to protect, you know, is the means and the mode of production. We have to protect, corporations we have to protect the wealthy we have to protect the property of the wealthy i mean it, it, it just be that's the first you know uh thing and so the last thing anybody's going to work worry about like ronald reagan you know said is uh the mentally ill we don't need uh, institutions that are mentally ill it costs too much money we'd be do much better to invest in you know in industry uh that's what happened and you know and now you know i'm here in la right now i mean uh the people living in tents all up and down the streets, you know, and they were doing that before COVID-19, you know, they were doing that, you know, because you you just, there's no way for some people to, to live that, you know, kind of suburban uh, everyday life, you know, and you're right about that. I mean, you know, and, and also you need people who understand that. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not, there's no attack on the police except for, but you do have to understand if you don't understand how to deal with something, then you have to fall back on, on the tools that you've, you've had, which is to deal, you know, with, with crime, you know, with criminals and with crime. Yeah, uh, if you, if you call the police to a, uh, a situation where there's a busted pipe under your sink, you know, I mean, if I could bring a plumber to that call, I could solve it pretty quickly. But if you can ask me to solve it, then I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And I might end up, you know, uh, having to use a nightstick on the pipe to get it into place and that's ugly right. exactly. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Gonna, and that's it uh, problems that can't be solved you know and i mean that's why it's a misnomer to say to defund the police what it, what it means is to 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 reform to allocate the funds mm-hmm. in order for for every for for things to be you know less for you for there mm-hmm. to be less crime you know uh for there very very to be uh you know less you know uh, uh public nuisances for that for the, whatever it is mm-hmm. uh and certainly, you know, you're going to, I, you know, because I, I, I imagine in the end, you're going to have to have better educated police, which is going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that and that that becomes, a, you know, I mean, so anyway, I, I don't like the defund uh, uh, terminology, I think is, it's a misnomer, but it causes conflict mm-hmm. in, in thought. Yeah, I do. I, I agree with you. I think that it does for, for police and police supporters, they they get their back up over the very word of it. And it, which is ironic that people anywhere get their backs up over words because there's been some pretty ugly words in the world that have yeah. caused a lot of problems for a long time. Um, you know, but the world is a, is a messy place. And, and I guess that segues a little bit into a question I wanted to ask you about your characters. Um, you, you know, you, you don't write very clear cut 
this is an absolute, you know, shining Dudley do right hero. This is a snidely whiplash uh, uh, villain. Your characters are complex. They're gray. Um, like I read down the river onto the sea last year. And uh, the character of Joe is, I mean, he, he's definitely gray and, and there may be more darkness than light in that particular character. It's an engaging book and I loved it. And, and it was, it was fun, but he's not a simple character. He's not a a clear cut character, I guess I should say. So, uh, you know, I know it's a softball question here, but I mean, do you do that purposefully? And, you know, what are your thoughts behind uh, creating characters like that? When you're writing novels, I, you, you, you need to create characters that are both engaging and believable. And if you fail at that, it still might be entertaining. And there are many writers out there who you know, just feel, well, I'll write, you know, this character is, you know, he's big, he's strong, he's tough, you know, he's James Bond, he's Shaft, he's, you know, whoever. Uh, that's, it's just not so interesting to me. Uh, and I think that, you know, any thinking reader would say, well, it, it's not interesting to them. Um, and so, you know, I just start with a character and, you know, and I, and I see where uh, he or she goes, what, you know, what they've done. The, the, the woman uh, that I have, the, the Vietnamese woman I have in, in the New Rawlers novel, you know, was uh, setting bombs, you know, against America and the South Vietnamese in, in uh, Vietnam. That's what she did. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, she's a, a villain to some and a hero to others. And that's and that's really kind of great. That, that to do that kind of work, I think is is really is really fun and great. We'll get back to our uh, discussion, which I'm really enjoying uh, with Mr. Walter Mosley in just a moment. Uh, but now is the time in the show where I like to turn things over to the experts. And by experts, I generally mean other authors, uh, readers individuals who might work at a bookstore, particularly your uh, mystery independent bookstores and so forth. Uh, And in this instance, uh, our experts are all former guests of the show uh, who took time to be on the show last season. Uh, So we're going to hear some book recommendations from Robin Burcell, Kate Anslinger, Barb Nicholas, and Hilary Davidson. Take it away, ladies. Hey, this is Robin Bursell. I am the co-author of The Wrath of Poseidon with Clive Cussler. And today I'd like to recommend Chris Goff's Birdwatching series, which is just released in the UK. Hello, this is Kate Anslinger, and I recommend Her Secret Son by Hannah Mary McKinnon. Um, Hannah's writing is first of all impeccable and it was one of those books um, where obviously it kept me on the edge of my seat but um, the ending just floored me and um, I feel like those kind of books are hard to come by so it will keep you on the edge of your seat it's easy to read and um, awesome for mystery lovers Hi, this is Barbara Nicholas. I'm the author of the Sydney Parnell Mystery Series featuring Railroad Cop Sydney and her canine partner, Clyde. And the book I would love to recommend today, I just finished reading Margaret Mitsushima's Tracking Game, which is a Timber Creek canine mystery for all you canine fans out there. This is the fifth book in the series, um, and Margaret just keeps upping the game with each book. 
Hi, I'm Hilary Davidson, author of Don't Look Down. And a book that I've been reading recently and love is called Love and Other Criminal Behavior by Nikki Dolson. It is a collection of short stories. Um, and it's just such an exceptional read. Um, Nikki has this amazing talent to pull you into a short story within the first few words and you just have no option except to follow her where she's going. So I would recommend that book to everyone. All right, some great recommendations there. And and honestly, when you get a recommendation from a a crime fiction author, you're probably not going to go wrong because uh, we write the stuff. So we pretty much know if it's any good when we read it. So, uh, all right. Well, let's get back to our interview with Mr. Walter Mosley. So you kind of follow your characters where they go. Um, how about the book itself? Does, you know, do these ideas for a book, do they come to you whole or do you usually start with a, what if kind of scenario? What if this happened to easy? What if he had to, what if Leonid had to uh, face this, that kind of a, of a, of a methodology? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you never know. I mean, I always tell, you know, tell people when, about when I'm writing novels or my couple of books about writing, a novel is bigger than your head. <laughs> so if you can hold the whole idea of a novel in your head, it's probably not a novel. Uh, that it's it's going to be growing as you write it. It's going to be changing. Other ideas are going to come out. Uh, the, the 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 relationship of the artist to the art means that you know you're discovering things. You might want to have said something, but you discover that you can't say that or the thing you wanted to say was wrong or there's something better inside of what you said uh, to make things work. And so, you know, I, I'm, I, I always look at it like, you know, there's, it's a medium, you know, the language, the, the story, the structure, and I just work on it and work on it until it, uh, it works right. A novel is bigger than your head. I really, I like that. It's so true. You start a book and, and you think it's going to be about this and the character is going to do that. And, you know, you can't even hardly get halfway through before you're getting surprised. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so series are that way too. I mean, where the character is going to go in the course of a series, it might not go where you planned. Yeah. I have a note, uh, that you've written some plays as well. I, I'm not familiar with your, with your play work. Uh, how's that different than writing a novel, your approach? Do you approach it differently? I mean, it's dialogue centric, so there's a difference there, but how, how is your approach different? Plays are, I, I think, for me, the, the hardest possible thing to write because uh, technically what you've done is you've created, uh, you know, a piece that's somewhere between 90 and 140 pages long. And it's only people talking. I mean, there's stage design and that kind of stuff, but it's really only people talking for... The, the, the full time, like an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. And you have to keep people sitting down in the dark, listening to these plays happening. Um, and, you know, that's really, that's really a challenge. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's lots of fun. Everything you write is, is different, you know? I mean, uh, poems are different, but I think everybody should understand poetry to be able to write. Um, short stories are different than novels because mm-hmm. they're so condensed, you know, and, and crystalline. Um, uh, screenplays are very much like poetry. They're about images that you see more than 
things that you say and hear, you know, but in, in the end, it's all the same, you know, it's all you writing one story after another, setting up one, you know, one, you know, one word after another, setting up these stories that's going to tell us how our world works or how uh, this world works. And TV scripts, or how would you throw them into the mix? It's the same thing. I mean, um, that, you know, as, as the same thing as, as poetry, the, the opposite of, of plays. I mean, there's talking and stuff, but mostly it's what you see. And it's, there's, there's a plot of the story unfolding, but there's also the plot of what you're seeing unfolding. Mm-hmm. And, and what you see leads from, from, you know, scene to scene, to story, to story, to image, to character. And, you know, it, it's, I mean, the problem, the, the problem with cinema in, in general, film in general, uh, movies and uh, TV shows is, is how much they cost. You know, if people were free just to make them, you know, without having to answer to anybody or to, when I say anybody, dozens of anybody's. Uh, I think that you could get some really brilliant work out there. As it is, it's so difficult to get the work brilliant because people are coming and saying, well, listen, we can't have that. We don't want that. We don't want to see that. Or we want to see this. We need more of this now. We can't do that now. You, you know, it's it's like, but I'm just trying to write my story. So yes, but we gave you $5 million. We need to get the $5 million back and then some. You know, so you have a... You have those those the, the the economic issues with uh, with screenplays. Well, I've I've collaborated on a few novels, and so you know I feel pretty confident in what that's like, at least you know mm-hmm. for the ones that I've done. But I've never been in a writer's room, um, so uh, and as I suspect that's vastly different than you know sitting at the keyboard by yourself or writing a book with a partner or something like that what's that experience like uh compared to being a novelist well it's uh i mean it sounds like you kind of described a little bit of it already when you got into the economics of it well there's i mean there's economic but you know once you're in the writer's room you don't have to worry about the economics because it's all settled but uh i mean you're getting paid uh, to write things. But w- one of the problems is that people keep calling you up and saying, well, well you can't really write that or we don't want to see this or we, we need to have more of that or, you know, and, and sometimes it makes sense. And sometimes it's, it's about the audience, not about the, about the, the story being told, which, you know, which is problematic. Uh, a writer's room is like a job. I mean, I find writing novels not like a job. It's what I do. I love doing it. I wake up in the morning. I'm working on a story. I'm trying to figure out what it's like. I'm, you know, it's like being in a in a boat, kind of. You have to keep it on course. Um, but a writer's room for for television is just you know, you got five people, ten people sitting in a room, uh, talking, and 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 you know, kind of telling you what you can and cannot do. And that's. Uh, I mean, it's hard. It's a, it's a lot of work, you know, and, and, and a lot of the work isn't necessarily about you creating, hmm. you know, it's about you fitting in. It's about you understanding how to have dialogue. It's about you uh, knowing when you should listen to somebody else because they want to tell a story that you don't find interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different um, gears you have to hit. You know, it's like one of those 25 gear bicycles, you know, <laughs> which, you know, some people know how to use. 
Um, I've got one and I always use just the middle setting. <laughs> I know, but you know, I mean, if you're in our, in our, if you're trying to get something done, you should know how to use all of them. And, and, and I don't, and you know, obviously you don't either. And so that's fine. Well, it kind of plays into the idea that I, I once heard, I, I wish I could remember who said it, that a good storyteller gives the audience the story they need to hear, not necessarily the one they want to hear. Um, and when you start getting too many cooks in the kitchen, you start uh, doing work by committee. I think the danger of the latter becomes more prevalent than, than, it, than it otherwise is. And am I on to anything there with, cause I haven't been in a writer's room, so I don't, I don't know about the writer's room, but I understand about from that phrase. I, I would I would like, you know, push that phrase a little further and say that the job of the novelist is to give people what they want to hear. But right underneath that is the stuff that they need to hear. Oh, yeah. I'll buy so that. you're reading the thing and you're enjoying it. You're having a good time. You know, the, the cowboy was on his horse galloping, you know, toward, you know, his fate. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, he 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 runs into uh, a problem, and 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 in that problem, uh, some uh, uh, Indian tribe or another person comes and and saves him. And but this guy's you know been in a war. He's been in the Indian Wars, you know. And but this guy saved him when he didn't have to, you know. And then and you know and, and then the story goes on. It's going on, but, but you. you you've gotten these moments where uh, there's an underlying connection between human beings, you know, and, uh, and you may not ever think about that again for years until, you know, you come into a situation which is reminiscent of that. And you say, wow, when I was reading that novel, this is exactly what happened. And the, these, these were the decisions that the cowboy made and they were bad decisions. Mm -hmm it was wrong. And, and now I understand why those people inside that novel killed these other people because they couldn't trust them. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that's the, the, the wonderful thing about a, a novel where you, you, you love reading it. You want to turn those pages. It's lots of fun, but it takes you in, in doing that. It takes you to places that you didn't, didn't necessarily want to go. Uh, on that note, I'm reading uh, Trouble is What I Do right now. I'm, uh -huh. I'm, I'm pretty early in it still. Um, but mm -hmm. what what I was struck by, a few, a few things I was struck by I wanted to touch on with you. One was mm -hmm. I just have to, I know we're talking a lot of inside baseball, but this is a podcast about crime writers and, and so forth. So I think there's a fair amount of writers that listen. Um, so they'll probably dig here in a little bit of inside baseball. But you had a phrase in there where... Uh, Leonid takes a drink of some very old, very good uh, bourbon. Mm -hmm. uh, and he describes the experience, the taste. Um, I'm going to see if I can get this right. Um, the taste was basically a, a green snake slithering through the grass. Am I close? Yeah, yeah that's all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty evocative phrase. I just want to compliment you on it. That well, as, a, as another writer that, you know, uh, that one jumped out at me like, do you ever read a book and you're and you're enjoying it as a reader and then something jumps out at you and touches the writer in you and you say, wow, that that's well done. That's a good mm -hmm. turn of phrase. And that was a moment to, in that one so far for me. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, getting I, I don't want to get too deep into the plot because I'm not that deep into the book anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but 
So stop me if you think I'm entering spoiler territory here. Okay. But I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the setup of the of the case that Leonid is looking into has to do with uh, the secret uh, ancestor of a prominent white man. Uh-huh. Can I go further, or you think I'm getting sure. into spoiler well, territory? Go right ahead. Uh, well, he has a uh, black. His grandmother, black. Uh, grandfather grandfather yeah, yeah that's right, right. catfish yeah. is his is his grandfather right right um and it just it it seems like it's going to be a book about identity and perception of race and how we identify ourselves and what the impact of 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 something as simple as how we're perceived by the color of our skin or by whatever other uh, way we've divided each, you know, ourselves in this in this society, that that, that that's going to be the focus of it. Now, is it going in that direction, or am I expecting something that's not going to be there? Well, I think that that that's a lot of it. A lot of it is that you know this this guy belongs to one of the original families, you know, of the the people who uh, who who colonized America, uh, even older, you know, an organization that goes back even older than the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And and so what I was able to do is to create um, an image of a you know of a of 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 three ships or coming to America and uh, and in the wake of those ships all of the 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 the, the souls of black folk uh, following mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Uh, coming in as as slaves and how you know years later these these two very early groups of colonists. Um, Come and, and and interact, and and what does that interaction mean? There's a there's a man, and you know he 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 doesn't he doesn't even know that he has this this history, uh, and so he's you know very right wing, very um, uh, committed to uh, a, a way of seeing the world, a very old way of seeing the world, and then you have his daughter who uh, is the opposite of him. And then you have this old black man who is the his is is his uh, is his father, uh, it's his, his uh, yeah his father, uh, who identifies him as his son, somebody that he loves, mm-hmm. and you know when you have that kind of complex emotional and, and uh, knowledge uh, based uh, story, you can come up with lots of really good things. Now, of course, there's a simple story where you know. Uh, Leon and Miguel has to come in and uh, uh, say, save uh, uh, catfish. There's another story of awareness that that's much much different, uh, and that's what and that's what we were talking about before. And that's and that's what I'm I'm really interested in. How complex are our identities, and how can we deal with that? And how do we deal with that? And how are we dealt with? You know, how different are we? How much the same are we? And how entrenched do we have to be about our ideas? I, I, I sometimes think that, you know, every sitcom you ever saw, right, uh, could have been a, a, a one minute episode if people just communicated. And that's the whole premise of sitcoms usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it extends to real life as well. I mean, I, I think there's so much vitriol that happens because people just don't talk to each other with the purpose of actually listening to the other uh, person. They, they, uh, 
they don't listen to the news for the purposes of learning anything. They seek confirmation. And it's just, it, I mean, I think that's the root of our problems in this country. And, the, and the news the is not presented in order for you, you to learn anything. It's mm-hmm. for you to be convinced of things, uh, which may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then beyond that, there's a, it's there to sell you things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sell you this, this new uh, you know, way to wash your hands. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and what you do, I mean, when you do working, working in fish, fiction, you try very hard to allude to the truth. You can't, you can't be telling the truth because it's fiction, but you, but you want to allude to, to, to a truth or the possibility of truth or of understanding. You, you know, what do you think needs to happen for us to reach some level of, of I mean, racial harmony might be a, a little bit too far to shoot for, but at least a peaceful existence in, in this country, because things seem to be getting more polarized, not less. Yeah, I wonder if they're more polarized. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's it's less. It used to be that people were completely separate. So you had, you know, uh, people who were white people who, no matter what they felt, you know, unless they were like, you know, communists or anarchists, uh, they were going to stick among their own people. And, you know, black people, you know, and, 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 and Chicanos and, you know, very many others, they had to stay with their own people. There's no leaving that. Uh, maybe people wanted it. Maybe they didn't want it. Doesn't really matter. There was no choice. Uh, today, there's a lot more choice, you know, when I'm, I was wa- you know, walking through a couple of the demonstrations here in, in, uh, in Los Angeles, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, mostly young, black and white and brown. And, you know, it's like everything. So uh, the way I look at it, it is already a, a big step forward, you know. It's a people's movement as opposed to a, uh, a segment of the people. Yeah, uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I, so, so I, you know, I like that, you know, I, I think it's really good. And, and, you know, listen, I understand people on the right and people on the right are, man, you know, which are mainly made up of, of white people, you know, so-called white people. I don't believe in that term, but it's, it's made up of, of, of them. And, uh, and yes, because of, of the, the, the imposition of power uh, by the corporations, uh, in our daily lives, uh, in, in our media, in our government. Um, it, it's like, it's no longer a question of, well, you know, we're going to help the white man out. And, you know, it's like, and so everybody is like, you know, is suffering, you know, you know, financially, uh, spiritually, uh, uh, artistically, there's no, there's no, uh, oh, there's no way up. And, and I think that, you know, if, if you're like, you know, uh, come from uh, any, any person who considers themselves white in America, there, there was at one time, not that long ago, where the way up was much easier for them than it was for everybody else. Now everybody else is struggling just as much. So, you know, people know what it's like to live, you know, by the, like the people I lived with my whole life, like easy and all those people. But, uh, and, and I know there's anger about it. But the anger shouldn't be, it's not like I'm taking away their money. You know, it's that, that the, the government and, and, and the corporations that pull the strings of the government are doing that. You know, that wealth is being, you know, is being hoarded, you know, in a smaller and smaller group of people. And that, that, the, that the, the, 
they're the ones who are welcome. They're the ones who are not worried about global warming. They're the ones who are not worried about, you know, any kind of, you know, real violence. What they're worried about is to be able to make money um, and, and, and to not be limited by people, you know, worried about if they're, you know, if the, the, the polar caps are melting or if uh, a, a black man is shot down in the street because, you know, he represents the poor, you know, uh, and, that's really kind of wonderful. I mean, I, it, it, it's wonderful because the, the information is out there, like we were talking about in novels, and now people can begin to understand it. And I think that people are beginning to understand. It. The speed at which we communicate now is so much greater than it was, say, 30 years ago, that uh, information you know, spreads so much faster. And that's, I mean, that gives revolution the opportunity to happen that much faster. Um, so I, I think that is a good thing. Well, you know, listen, uh, and this is something I would say, people don't usually think it means much, but before uh, the, the, the World War I, knowledge doubled all the way back in human history about once every hundred years. So if you knew a hundred, you know, if you know a uh, hundred things in, in 1501, in 1601, you know, 200 things. And in 1701, you, you know, uh, 400 things, let's say, you know, because it, it doubles. And that's, that's, that, that's fine. But starting at the end of World War One, knowledge doubled. And it's gotten faster and faster and faster. Now knowledge doubles every, uh, 10 months, between 10 and 16 months, something like that. And I'm just, that means that nothing is stable under our feet. Five years pass and there's so many other things that run our lives. I mean, I remember when I used to come home at night and you would have to dial the phone and the phone would ring. There's no such <laughs> thing as an answering machine. I mean, you know, if, if you if somebody's wanted to call you, they had to wait till you got home and you weren't on the phone to answer the phone. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's the way it was. And, you know, where we're at today, what we can do today. I mean, we have this, you know, this pandemic, which at any other previous time, we wouldn't have been able to stay at home because technology allows a lot enough, not a, not yeah, enough people to stay home, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just uh, extraordinary. Well, I learned a term while I was doing a little research before I talked to you, um, and that is Afrofuturist sci-fi. And I guess I bring it up now because uh, you're, you're talking about the progression of humanity and the speed at which that happens. Um, you've written some Afrofuturist sci-fi. I guess, I, I think I know what it is based on just the title, but maybe you could uh, illuminate uh, a little bit and talk about whatever, uh, what you wrote in that subgenre. Well, you know, I've written a lot of uh, books. I think that probably the, the first two uh, speak most strongly to it, uh, Blue Light, which, is, which sees the human race as a, the first step in, a, in, a, in a, a, a development of lives, you know, that, that we're the first half of the potential life that we can live. And then this, this uh, uh, planet-sized life form passes by and shoots these rays of blue light and it actually changes people and th those changes that are going to happen to a certain amount of people you know a few hundred maybe is going to is, is going to change the world um and it, it just talks about uh you know it so that so in a way it's talking about race it's talking about spiritualism it's talking about how 
unimportant maybe the the human race is uh, in, in relation to a, to a larger system. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And the other one I wrote is Futureland. It's, it's the near future uh, where, you know, one man has actually uh, cornered all the wealth of the world. And he calls himself Dr. Kismet. And there's a a, de a development of the kind of trouble that we're happening today. The whole the whole novel builds toward these you know these kind of heroes that I have, but also these people who who hate uh, you know uh, uh, people of color and who develop a disease to kill them. But but one of my my scientists actually destroys parts of, of the disease. And what happens is that only people who are at least one eighth of African descent survive the plague. And so then you have this range of people from uh, midnight black to coal, to coal black to uh, high yellow um, living in the world. And then you have, and, and, and a kind of a racial war starts to develop between them. And so uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's talking about, it, inclu it, it includes race, it includes mm -hmm. race as being an important thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 it, it, and it talks about how, how we live and how we live with each other inside the system. Did you, have you read a lot of science fiction? I mean, I grew up reading yeah, sci-fi and fantasy. What, what are some of your favorite sci-fi or fantasy authors? Well, you know, I was, I was reading people from like the old days, you know, so people like, you know, Aldous and um, uh, Roger Zelazny. Yeah, loves Zelazny. Jay Bailey. And, you know, there, there are a lot of those people then. And, you know, and then, you know, more uh, contemporary and, you know, extraordinary writers, uh, 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 black writers, uh, Samuel Delaney, who's possibly the greatest, science fiction writer ever, Octavia Butler, who's right up there with him. There's a, there's a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot of, you know, science, a lot of science fiction. I mean, when I say a lot, I mean, you know, a great deal. My, Michael Moorcock, who I love. Mm -hmm. Elric of Mel Nibonet. That's yeah. a good series. Yeah. I thought Roger Zelazny's uh, series, the Amber series was one of the coolest ideas of multi, you know, multiverse that that was the first thing I ever read that had multiverse theory in it, where you can travel between different worlds or different timelines, which I think right. is a fascinating. Uh, and it was based on the imagination. I, I like the first five. I, I think after that, I got mm -hmm. kind of lost interest, but the first five in that series were great. Yeah. The first cycle there. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was good. You know, you, 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 you've won a lot of awards and you've been recognized uh, by, by a lot of different organizations. Is there one that you're proudest of? And follow up to that, your, your most recent one, at least that I saw, was the Edgar for Down, down the River and to the Sea. Right. Um, you know, do, they, do the awards feel different now at this stage in your career when you've got a shelf full of them as opposed to maybe that first one? But, you know, it's interesting, you know, because... I was at a, at a an event with Danny Glover once, and I, and I was supposed to introduce Danny, and and um, I said to him, I said, uh, so Danny, so what what is this uh, word about? What what does it mean? And and Danny says it means that the people here are trying to raise some money, and they give him this award <laughs> so people will buy tickets. And I went, oh, okay. Was, yeah, I mean, that's, that was actually very real. So a lot of times, you know, awards kind of reflect the needs of the organization and whatever. Uh, but there are some. Uh, I, I, I have a Grammy that I really, I just love it. I wrote this, the, the, the liner notes for a collection of, of Richard Pryor concerts that were recorded. Uh, and I won a Grammy for that. Really? And, and, I, I did I, not know that. Oh, yeah. I won that Grammy. And I was so happy because when I went there, I wasn't even invited to the party of the company that invited me to come. Because 
I, I, you know, they just weren't thinking about it, you know, so I knew I must have, the people must have really wanted to give me the award because, you know, they weren't using me for anything. They didn't really care. <laughs> I thought that was great. And, and then, you know, the Grand Master Award from the Mr. Writers of America. And then I, I got that one year and the next year I, I win uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the best novel, which is almost unheard of for them. Either you, you get one or you get the other. You don't get both. Mm-hmm. And and I felt very, I felt very, you know, good about that, you know, and, and, you know, also, you know, you feel good about the, you know, changes going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've, I've often called the Edgar, the, you know, the Oscars of, of the mystery writers. I mean, do mm-hmm. you think that's fair? Yeah, no, I think it's, a, it's, it's very important. And these are people who are very, very committed uh, to the genre. Mm-hmm. You know? I didn't know about that. Uh, Richard Pryor. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Well, that's, I loved Richard Pryor. He was, he was, funny funny his stand-up was absolutely hilarious but he was one of those guys like not all stand-up comedians can also translate that to the the screen as well and he certainly was able to do both yeah and he was brilliant he challenged you you know i mean you know he he challenged people he comes out of like the school of lenny bruce Mm -hmm. this is the world we're living in so let's laugh about where we're living (laughs) that now i think and and that's great you mentioned earlier in the, in this discussion about your work featuring uh, uh, black hero, black male heroes, and yeah. uh, that that's an underrepresented uh, hero in, in in crime fiction. Certainly, uh, do you think that's improving? Are we seeing good examples of that uh, in contemporary releases? Well, I think that it 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 is true that black women writers have been more. Uh, capable of developing heroic characters that we read about and, you know, wish we knew them, want to become them, glad that they exist in the world, etc. And and Black men have been kind of historically more critical of, of, of their protagonists. Mm-hmm. So you have somebody like Richard Wright. You would never say Richard Wright has heroes because he doesn't, you know. Uh, and, and, and there are a lot of other characters who, you know, that there's a thing of understanding their flaws. I think more and more, especially in the genres, like I, I belong to a, an organization called the Crime, uh, Crime Writers of Color. And we have over 200 members who are, are people writing books and you know, publishing them. Uh, and many of the, those people, men and women, are creating, you know, heroes which I think is so important because people want to identify with who they read and how she, are you going to learn from them if you, if you don't identify with them? And so, yeah, I think things are getting better, but it's slow. It's still slow. Yeah. I've had a, a couple of guests uh, that come to mind, uh, uh, Danny Gardner's Elliot Caprice books. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I've had uh, Sean Cosby on and he just, uh, I think hit a grand slam with uh, Blacktop Wasteland. Yeah. It's a great book. Uh, swinging back around to to a little bit of uh, your releases, Bloodgrove uh, coming out in January, a new uh, Easy Rollins, uh, but you've got a collection of short stories coming out before then. Yes, this this month in uh, on on September fifteenth, I have a book coming out uh, from a, a Grove Atlantic called The Awkward Black Man, and The Awkward Black Man is a collection of sixteen uh, seventeen stories that I've written over the past 30 years about unlikely black male heroes, uh, a mad scientist kind of guy, 
a guy a, a, a guy who, who who can't accept a job because they're they they call him an African American and he says if you call that guy an Italian American how can I be an African American I could be a Namibian American maybe or Ethiopian <laughs> American he said but I'm more likely a slave American that 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 kind of guy then you have a guy who just you know his his, his life with his wife just isn't working right and it, it and and his whole life falls apart outside of that or uh, you have a young man, you know, uh, starting in business who is continually getting in trouble and he, he, all, he thinks everything's his fault, but it isn't. And, and, and you discover that, you know, they're they're odd, they're uh, maybe overweight or, 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 or too shy or, you know, having too, too many idiosyncrasies. But but what you do is you're I'm trying to look at at various black men who greatly impact their world, but are not, you know heroic or wonderful or beautiful or anything like that they're just they're just struggling they're they're you know our, our uncles you know and our cousins you know say oh you know he crazy you know that guy <laughs> you know and um but the right kind of crazy yeah well it, it for some people so for some people no you know for some people oh, he, no he crazy you know and and i just you know i i have one of the stories is about a guy who dies you know having failed at everything his whole life he, he falls dead and his hatred is so powerful that it won't let him go. And so he becomes a ghost, but he's a ghost who's at the beck and call of the people that he hated. They don't know that, but whenever they talk about him, he appears. So he's haunted. He's not haunting, but he's haunted by the world and, and the hatred he left behind. You know, it's just, you know, and so I, it, it's so much fun to write about those kinds of, you know, characters, because, you know, I don't see them, you know, mostly in black literature, you know, because, and certainly not literature about black people, you know, other than, than us writing it, you know, and I just, you know, I just wanted to, you know, to, to, to do that and to, and to enjoy it, you know. I, I, I like that idea. That's fascinating. It comes out, what, what date? September 15th, Grove Atlantic. Uh, hey, before I let you go, I have to ask, Devil in the Blue Dress, the film adaptation. Yeah. How closely does it adhere to the novel, would you say? It's very close, very close. I mean, there's some differences, uh, but it's very close. Carl Franklin did a great job. How involved were you in that? Uh, I wasn't that involved. I wrote the book and I, you mm-hmm. know, I came a few times to the set, but you know, Carl did it and mm-hmm. uh, he did a great job. Is that weird having, you know, you wrote this book and it, you know, it was your first one even, you know, and now somebody else is, is using that material to make a, you know, a, a movie. Did you have to resist the, inclination to try to reach in and influence no i, I yeah i'm I, lucky i i know that when you when you when you do a, a translation of something uh it's going to be different mm-hmm. and that's and that's okay that was 95 i think right yeah well denzel washington was he denzel yet in 95 or was he, he was a, just at the at, at the at the cusp of yeah. becoming denzel i mean he was already people loved him he was very right. popular you know uh, but you know, he hadn't, he hadn't taken that final step. And what a step that was. I mean, tra- yeah. training day was lucky for us. Wow. I mean, yeah. If you look at that guy's filmography, it, it, you forget how many varied and impactful films he's both been in and starred in. Yeah, no, that's true. It's no question. Uh, so the awkward black man coming in September, right around the release of this episode. And then, uh, folks don't have to wait long to get their fix because come January blood grove, the next easy mm-hmm. Rollins book will be out. I want to tell you, it's been an extreme honor to have you on the show and, uh, I wish you well in your next book. Well, thank you. 
and it's great to be here. All right. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, pretty uh, lengthy interview with uh, Mr. Mosley. He was very kind uh, and generous with his time. I, I appreciate it. I learned a lot. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to read his newest book, The Awkward Black Man. It's a cool premise, I thought. And um, and I already know the guy can write, as probably you do too. Uh, so uh, on our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we are going to talk to Lee Matthew Goldberg. Uh, I'm reading his book, The Ancestor, right now. And I had a great conversation with him right before he's about ready to go on vacation to the beach. So uh, it was a lot of fun. That'll be on the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. Uh, Zafiro update, not a lot to tell you since uh, Lance talked about Badge Heavy, the third Charlie 316 book coming out, uh, came out two days ago on the 14th of September. The next book in that series, the final book in the arc, Code 4, will actually be out in late November. So if you are wanting to burn through the Tyler Garrett saga, uh, you're not going to you're not going to get the J George R R Martin treatment here. You're going to get a pretty quick follow-up. Uh, very atypical for the industry actually. So uh, the only other thing I'll add is that uh, the Sixth River City book Place of Wrath and Tears came out between the seasons. Uh, came out on August 12th. Uh, so Place of Wrath and Tears, River City number six is also available. Uh, now you can check out my website, franksafiro.com or any, anywhere you get books. Uh, I wanted to let you know what the format of the program is going to be for, for this season. Um, hearkening back to uh, what it was originally supposed to do once I started going weekly. And that is uh, every episode will be an open and shut episode. 15 minutes-ish, 20 max, but... But try to stay closer to 15, uh, except for episodes like this one, which are the, a feature episode once a month. Those will be more of a deep dive, which I was doing at the beginning of the show uh, in season one with the monthly installments. Uh, so I uh, hope, hope that works for everybody out there. It allows me to uh, have contact with as many authors as possible and promote as many authors as possible while still having time for my own work uh, and uh, life. So <laughs> that's kind of kind of the perfect balance, I think. And so that's the way we're going to look going forward. Uh, I'd like to say thanks to uh, Walter Mosley for being on the show, uh, for being so generous with his time. Uh, also to Down Out Books for being a great sponsor. Thanks to the book recommendation crew for this episode, uh, Robin Bursell, Kate Ann Slinger, uh, Barb Nicholas, and Hilary Davidson. Uh, as a side note, uh, each of those uh, authors has been uh, interviewed for the program. Uh, so if you go back to previous seasons, you can listen to them talk at length about their own work. Uh, and it's well worth your time. Very smart ladies, very uh, sharp writers, uh, good storytellers, and very different uh, uh, from each other. And I'd like to say a special thanks to you, the listener, for uh, tuning in here. Uh, you always wonder after a break if people are going to come back. Uh, and so thank you for being here and uh, for listening to the show. Uh, so uh, next episode, we will be talking to uh, Lee Matthew Goldberg. Uh, until then, this is Frank Zaffaro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.